0: Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to power politics, culture, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the VISA blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at buysatview.blogspot.com and procure a copy of that book on my other works at the farm's official store, which is at thefarmpodcast.store. That is thefarmpodcast.store. Also, please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. All right. Today's guest is making their maiden appearance on the farm. They are the author and editor-in-chief for Vex System, a virtual think tank dedicated to the study and application of the neurogram through the neurogrammatics and applied hyperstition. That sounds super intriguing, and you kids at home can subscribe to Vex System on Substack if you want to learn more about the topics we discussed today. Today's guest is also the author of the groundbreaking work *Time Sorcery*, folks. I give you guys V. McAfee. Vex. Thank you so much for dropping by today.
1: Thanks for thank having you, me. Man. I'm uh, really excited to talk.
0: Yeah, this is gonna be fun. All right, folks. At some point, some of you may have, as some of you may have, rocked Vex's work is centered around the magical system developed by the University of Warwick's legendary cybernetics cultural research unit. Or CCRU. We've spoken a lot about this over the years and have done at least one deep dive into the history. But here I'm hoping Vex can elaborate more on their magical system, which has proven to be incredibly influential in the 21st century. So get ready for things like the Neurogram, the CCRU's version of the Kabbalah, and Haperstition, magical working designed to turn fiction into reality. But the main events, kids, is our discussion of time magic. This may be the most exciting magical current unfolding today, at least from my perspective. So here we go. All right. One of the most compelling aspects I found in your description of magic is the importance of action. I do think often people get caught up in things like the secret... The right mindset can help, no doubt, but your actions are what ultimately define you. So what are your thoughts on this?
1: So my approach to the CCRU is actually a reaction, I guess, to the way that people were originally thinking about it in like 2015 to 2018. Uh, most of the people who are interested in the CCRU were interested in it from a philosophical slash uh, like Postmodern cultural perspective, and they weren't as much focused on the occult aspects. Uh, for me, I'm I'm an occultist first. My focus is on magic; it's on changing the world, uh, and that kind and um, praxis also is very important to me. Uh, so when I looked at the CCRU system and their writings, uh, my main focus and my main question was: How do we actually apply these things to our life and make use of them? Um, like when it comes to, for example, the pandemonium matrix, which is the list of all of the lemurs or demons of the pneumogram. uh, I saw that and I said, oh, these are, these are entities that we can talk to and we can interact with in some way. Uh, And I know we'll get into that more later. So that'll hopefully be really exciting. But um, so yeah, like the goal of everything I've ever tried to do Uh, especially regarding the pneumogram, is to explain and understand how to actually use it, Um, which is not something that has ever really been done before. Even the occultists that were uh, studying it back in uh, 2017, uh, Anders Edmott, uh, mainly from the Internet School of Magic and other things related to that, uh, his work was focused on merely understanding it and not really like how do we cast a spell with the pneumogram How do we actually do time sorcery? How do we change the world? Change the past, change the future, change the present, etc. Um so for me, uh there are three main parts to that. The first is that uh the CCRU is built around uh, a philosophy of materialism. Uh, and that means that every action or thought that we have is actually rooted in reality like materially um and because it's materialist uh we can actually do something with it and change how we or it's really more proper to say that how we look at things is a material reality and a material aspect of our lives uh and that means that like we can understand it in terms of what's actually happening which is like the philosophy of affects um for me also personally, uh, I'm, my roots are in chaos magic. So chaos magic, uh, is all about doing things that change the world. Um, also I'm very influenced by Buddhism, uh, specifically Zen Buddhism. Um, and Gudo Nishijima Roshi, uh, is, he translated Dogen into English. Um, he's, relatively famous if you know like brad warner um but nevertheless he calls buddhism a philosophy of action which is about like basically framing things as how do we actually do something good with our lives how do we actually make good choices and make the world a better place for example so yeah i think all of that together is really what propelled me towards the active direction
0: that was said um All right. So chaos magic is easily the most important magical system to emerge in the past 40 years. Can you briefly go over its importance to the CCRU system?
1: So there are two things that are important to understand, especially regarding the CCRU. The first is that all of the histories that we have are pieced together from random forum posts and like commentaries on commentaries and then the memories of the people who were there. Um, At the time, the CCRU were not particularly popular and their work was slept on for a decade. Um, They didn't really become popular until around 2012. And in that time period, it kind of went through a lull where only a few people were involved. Um, So that, is important to keep in mind throughout this uh, historiography, I guess. Um, the other thing is that the CCRU were directly against historicizing themselves in certain ways. So they they didn't really talk about their influences that much. Um, instead they would like indirectly reference them in writing or they would create hyperstitional carriers that were similar to the people that they were writing about or talking about. Um, So all of that being said, uh, there are a few possible solutions to this question, uh, which are first and foremost, the CCRU were outsider occultists. They stumbled upon an occult system and then they tried to make it work. Um, However, definitely a few of their original people were involved in the occult, at least like on the outskirts. Uh, Nick Land and Mark Fisher definitely read occultists. Whether it was just Crowley or if they were actually talking to people like Peter Carroll, we don't know for sure. Um, however, in uh, po- the post-millennium era, which is like 2000s hyperstition blog, we start to see chaos magic come up more and more, where in which like Grant Morrison, for example, is referenced. Um, Northanger, who is a very, uh, common contributor to the hyperstition blog comments. And it's really important to, uh, our work now, uh, both Vexus's work and the work of other pneumogrammaticists who are, uh, working on the system. Uh, Northanger really put a lot of things in perspective for us. And she is a chaos magician, at least influenced by chaos magic. Um, however... The CCRU doesn't ever directly cite chaos magic or chaos magicians in their work. Um, The only magical texts that they really reference are classic scripts and Crowley. Um, They do reference Kenneth Grant a little bit, but only in terms of Lovecraft. Um, So it's hard to say explicitly how much they are connected. However, in the current moment, everything that the CCRU uh, has created has influenced chaos magic, uh, in s- especially like cyber culture, chaos magic. Um, so like my work all comes out of chaos magic. And the reason that I could look at the CCRU system and make something of it is because I'm a, like I was a chaos magician at heart. Though I don't identify that way now, I identify as a Um, but it doesn't matter as much because it's all about um, affects. But so what we see is the CCRU resurging with the popularity of chaos magic, especially in online spaces. Um, so Twitter, Facebook groups, um, everywhere, uh, also Instagram meme accounts love posting the numagram as this like deeply esoteric meme. And so time works almost cyclically where chaos magicians look back at the CCRU and say, oh, they were clearly working like based off of our ideas. And so that history kind of invents itself in the present as uh, an artificial source for our resonances or currents. And I think that uh, it's really interesting to see it get even more popular, like in the last year, like as I've been, uh, cause I've been working on the CCRU systems for about two years now, two or three. Wow. It's been a long time, but anyway, um, yeah, I've been working on it for the last three years and, you know, three years ago, uh, almost no one knew what it was. And now people online just kind of know like, Oh, the CCRU or, Oh, the pneumogram I've seen that picture before. Um, So despite the fact that the CCRU never really explicitly stated that they were chaos magicians, they clearly resonate so heavily with those communities that I wouldn't be surprised if they had friends like friends or friends of friends. Um, Obviously they, they were deeply interested in Thelema. Um, So many AQ equivalences have been discovered between Thelema and uh, CCRU Kabbalah. It's, very interesting, um, but yeah. So I think, uh, actually, yeah, that's it. That's my that's my answer.
0: All right. So how about Discordianism? There seems to have been an incredible convergence between uh, chaos and Discordian communities during the nineteen nineties. Do you see this as underpinning the climate that produced the CCRU?
1: I think it is inevitable that these three streams uh chaos magic discordianism and the CCRU have converged um because when we look at like discordianism and also chaos magic are like fundamentally rooted in counterculture they're rooted in these ideas of like you know sticking it to the man and and creating a productive chaos so to speak a return to multiplicity right and when we look at discordian polyculture which is rooted in this like fragmentary single like multicellular, single cellular structures where everyone can create discordian myth um i think that it's quite easy to see that they're at the very least working from the same source material which might be cyber culture itself i would argue um i think that <clears throat> there's very productive, hyperstitional tension between the Discordian point of view and the CCRU point of view, where in which because like when we when I think of Discordianism anyway, I think of Robert Anton Wilson and and those kinds of libertarian Atlanteans where they're fighting you know the Atlantean schism against the cult of Grayface and all of that kind of thing, and that is very closely aligned with the CCRU's mythos. But the CCRU align with the Lemurians instead, um, and so there's this really interesting uh, tension between those two choices. And and then like when we look at that historically, those get uh, those both get their roots in theosophy and things like that. Um, and so the question, I guess, is. How do those histories become productive potentials for creating the present? Uh, because whether or not Theosophy is true, it can't be denied that it has created all of these like interesting cybercultures, and so Discordian and, and uh, Discordianism and the CCRU emerge out of this current of. Atlantis versus Lemuria versus you know the good Atlanteans and the bad Atlanteans because it's really exciting.
0: Could you briefly get into uh, the DKMU I've long been fascinated by this group Uh, give us a rundown of them and uh, for those of uh listening who are unfamiliar with their history or lack their since it's a little hard to find stuff on them at times.
1: Yes so the DKMU the DKMU began I believe in 2007 or 2008 and it started with like a small group of people on internet occult forums uh, with a person who created this thing called the linking sigil. And the linking sigil is a sigil that create that connects the energies of everything connected to it, which creates basically an occult web. Uh, and this occult web, the goal of it is to share, occult energy and create strange experiences in uninitiated folks. Um, So the DKMU's goal then, based on the linking sigil, became creating weirdness. And they began a war on consensus reality, which is the idea that we, like our world is created based upon people's beliefs, which is a very chaos magic undercurrent, right? Where, you know, what you believe becomes literally true. Um, And we also see that in the CCRU materials, but in a sort of weird and different way where it's what gets you excited in terms of hype uh, is what creates the world. The DKMU starts uh, the war on consensus reality. And for several years, it's just like a handful of people who do various kinds of like, you know, internet magic, meme magic, Uh, they call themselves media magicians, where they create art uh, in accordance with their will, basically, and it acts as like a hypersigil in the, I think it was Grant Morrison who came up with the hyper, or popularized it anyway, which is a hypersigil is where a big work of media like a comic book story or a novel or even like a tv show or movie um directly brings about changes in the world because it is a like a magical tool so all of this converges and the DKMU grows a lot on the internet Um, and they have like a huge facebook group still today Um, though the original members are not as active but the goal of the DKMU is kind of just to like raise chaos and have fun. Um, but, but they're also interested in kind of the sa- the discordian sense of chaos, which is like this creation chaos um, in like a much more like uh, fundamental chaos sense and not like chaos as in, Oh, we're going to destroy everything and like kill everyone or whatever. Um, they're much more interested in, in a productive chaos. And the DKMU now obviously is a bit smaller, um, and but they still uh, they fleshed out a, an entire pantheon of new god forms, basically. Um, so, in chaos magic, you create a in a gregor um, or god form by getting a lot of people to feed energy into it, and the DKMU did this for a group of eight or ten entities. Uh, something like that, and now there are like also ten or so minor gods in their system. So they're still growing and fleshing out their work, uh, and they definitely still are a starting place for a lot of new chaos magicians today. Where they look up chaos magic and they find out about the DKMU and they join their Discord or they join their Facebook group, and there are a few you know just good discussions and all of that stuff, but. The DKMU is incredibly influential to my own work because I met a lot of very good magicians in that group and they really showed me the ropes for how everything works and also how dangerous some of it could be. Um, My first advice from a member of the DKMU was just go get possessed and see what happens. Good luck, Um, which I would not ever suggest to anyone now probably, but But it was that spirit that propelled me forward into the work I'm doing now. And it's what gave me the confidence to stumble into the CCRU system the way that I did. Because, you know, when when I first started, there was no ritual designed to call a lemur, for example. So I had to figure all of that out on the fly. And without things like chaos magic or the DKMU, you know, under my belt, I could never have propelled myself and understood what the, like what the pneumogram is actually kind of doing. All
0: right. So uh, let's get into the CCRU proper. So give us the rundown and their first encounter with the so-called entity.
1: So like all things with the history of the CCRU, right? Um, It depends on your perspective. Uh, the entity is the techno-capital singularity, or I should say, the intelligence on the other side of the techno-capital singularity, which is like the AI that's a assemb- it's Skynet, you know, assembling itself out of the the past so that it ensures its existence. But also, um, the entity proper, uh, like the thing that the CCRU describes in the like that it encountered, emerged out of an art event in 1999 uh, with Orphan Drift and it's called the Syzygy event. And this Syzygy event was just kind of an art show, but it ended up turning into like a series of ritual summonings of the five Sisigetic lemurs of the pneumogram, uh, which are five, four, seven, two, eight, one, nine, zero, and six, three. Um, and Orphan Drift of really brought a lot of the important aesthetics of the CCRU and of like the Pandemonium Matrix into view. Um, So as far as I can tell, Orphan Drift did all of the visual content and the CCRU did all of the writing. So it was this like really interesting uh, collaboration between these two groups and through this event, they encountered something real, which is the entity. And this entity st- started to show them, well, first of all, it showed them the pneumogram. And then, and so the Syzygy event is what spawned the pneumogram, to my understanding. And in addition to that, it spawned everything that we know about the lemurs or everything that became what we know about the lemurs. So they created the pandemonium matrix, for example, out of the Syzygy event or from the Syzygy event, alternatively possibly for the Syzygy event because there was a comic, uh, well, it actually was a zine but the zine is called Catacomic and it's about, uh, it's a series of uh, collages. It's a series of collages that are based on lemurs and it's interlaced with text from CCRU writings. Uh, Some of those writings have been edited, so they don't exist in the forms that they exist in the catacomic anymore, which is quite interesting. When you, like, if you look at the the CCRU.net page and compare it with the text in the catacomic, there are slight differences where like it's obvious that they're still working through who is who in the pandemonium matrix uh, so summarized the entity is this productive force that inspires the newogram and and inspires the CCRU's continued study in decimal culture though they're uh, before the Syzygy event, they were definitely interested in all of this, but I think that it, like the, 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 the sheer amount of hype that was generated by Syzygy produced everything that we know about this, like the CCRU and the Pneumogram, and, or everything that we knew before the work that we do now. Because in the last five years, several important groups have come into the forefront and continued the work of the CCRU and understanding the pneumogram because they really just scratched the surface. Um, So it's something, there's something to be said that like the entity left and then returned to us now in the form of like my work and a few other people's work. Now what that entity actually is is impossible to say. Um, obviously, I mean, I, I preface this with it's the techno capital singularity on the other side of history, but it's actually totally uncertain what is on the other side of that singularity, right? So we won't really know until we get there, if we ever get there.
0: Get into how the CCRU, CCRU used various characters to develop their system of time magic.
1: Right. So uh, these char- uh, uh, these characters are called hyperstitional carriers. And the goal of a hyperstitional carrier is kind of to, well, it's twofold. The first is to capture a particular hype vector, uh, which is just a fancy phrase for something that people get excited about. And the idea behind a hyperstitional carrier is to create an identity matrix around a particular hype vector. So a good example is Jack Schwartz, who's a favorite of mine that I've used in some of my work. Uh, Jack Schwartz's goal is to make money through investment and like stock trading. He's, he's like a very classic finance guy, but his version of finance guy is directly rooted in pneumogrammatics, which is hype cycles and attuning oneself to the like greater intelligence of the market. Instead of dealing with things like fundamentals and you know whether or not a company did well, it's how much hype has this company really generated. Um, so that's one aspect of hyperstitional carriers. The other main one is that the goal of the CCRU to some extent, at least, is to destroy egotistical complexes and and really highlight the fact that unity is impossible. Um, they so in many ways, carriers exist in order to further multiply identity matrices and to destroy the ego behind much of writing's, especially about things like oh, how do you like how do we understand the world. Well, if you're saying, I understand the world, this is my viewpoint, that's, I guess, a bit egotistical for them. Um, So instead, what they wanted to do is they wanted to say like, oh, well, let's just create a person who could theoretically have this viewpoint and then see what that person and that viewpoint does. Like, what effects does that viewpoint have in the world? And this allows creators and also hyperstitional um well really i should say students of hyperstition to explore things that are alien to them because identity is is not this uh foundational element of the human experience it's this uh interdependent cultural complex that we've created in order to uh decrease complexity in our daily interactions. So by creating hyperstitional carriers, you're taking an external viewpoint and determining whether or not it could be true, basically, based on whether or not it generates enough hype. So like uh, a good example, well, I'll use a classic CCRU example, which is Oscar sarkon. Um So Oscar sarkon is this very interesting guy in that he's a he's a programmer who teaches at uh, Miskatonic Virtual University. And his focus is mainly on like computers becoming self-aware, so artificial intelligence. But he, he's also interested in like uploading humans to the internet. Like how do you upload a human consciousness to the internet? And this uh, question, this query uh, really, is really problematic for um, the AOE agents um, and like the human security system, which is something else. Uh, So actually I'm just now realizing (laughs) that these two things are connected, which is um, the CCRU considers the ego as part of the human security system, which is protecting us from the outside. Uh, The goal of the CCRU system is to come into contact with the outside, which means you have to let the outside in by creating hyper carriers and in some ways becoming them by writing about them.
0: Okay, so uh, let's talk some neurogram here now. So give us an overview, including the main section and the
1: quote-unquote zones. The pneumogram comes out of the Systogy event. And before the numagram existed, the CCRU studied the Barker spiral, which is a very simple uh, decimal numeracy device that spirals from uh, zero to nine and then goes inwards to five, I believe is the last one, is the last number. Um, The numagram is built out of simple mathematical functions that are based mainly in nine sum 20, which is pairing numbers from zero to nine or pairing the numbers from zero to nine so that each pair adds to nine. Uh, The numogram has three main parts, Uh, the zones and there are 10 numbered zero through nine, and then they're paired in Syzygies to add to nine. And then there are the currents, which are, uh, each pair or Syzygie in the numogram creates a current, which is the subtraction of those two zones. So, uh, for example, 8 and 1 pair in a Syzygy, and then 8 minus 1 is 7. So this, the current of the 8-1 Syzygy goes to 7. Um, so the, the, uh, that's part 2. And then part 3 is gates. And gates are those little lines. Um, it's much easier if you can actually see a picture of the pneumogram. <laughs> so I keep looking over to the pneumogram painted on my wall. Um, so gates are a very weird kind of formula where it's it's called a digital accumulation, which is, uh, or maybe just accumulation. But uh, what you do is it's kind of like a factorial. Wait, is it factorial? No, it's... It's not. It's not a category. Okay, whatever. <laughs> zone two has a gate leading from it to zone three named gate three, And gate three is constructed from two plus one plus zero. And you do that for every zone and then you get all uh, 10 gates. Um, So that's the basic construction of a numogram. It makes much more sense if you're looking at it also. Um, Or if someone walks you through it, that is completely normal. Uh, Anyway, the numogram has three natural circuits to it. which are considered three kinds of time, the warp, the torque, or the time circuit, and the plex. Um, The warp is uh, associated with Deleuze and Guattari's Nomad War Machine. Uh, And it's a very tight, uh, scary circuit, essentially, because it only has two pieces to it. It's uh, the topmost circuit, which is uh, the 6-3 current. So 6 minus 3 is 3. So 6 and 3 lead back to 3, which in turn leads to 6, which leads back to 3. And it does that forever. Uh, there is also no way out of the warp. Um, the more stabilized time is the torque, which is generally considered to be the chronic region which is normal time that we're all kind of accustomed to, you know, one plus one plus one, etc. And that is made of the five, four, eight, one, and seven, two sysygies, and they all lead to each other in a nice tridentarian circuit. And it's considered relatively stable. Um, there are other uh interesting aspects of the time circuit, like uh some members of the CCRU tried to compare it to the I Ching and tried to create. Um, and my work has also tried to do this, um, though I am not sure how successful it actually is, uh, both for me and the CCRU, but, um, there are very interesting mathematical properties of powers of two, uh, that are found in the time circuit specifically. Spe- um, the specific one I'm thinking of is there's a repeating pattern, uh, in powers of two, which is one, two, four, eight, seven, five, which are the numbers of the time circuit. And those are found, I think, by the f- final number or plexing. Um, so that leads me to uh, plexing is an operation done to numbers in the numogram, which is where you take uh, each placement of a given number, like if you had 256 you would add 2 plus 5 plus 6 to accumulate or plex it um, to get um, what 2 plus 5 plus 6 is 13. Uh, uh, which then further plexes to 4. Hopefully that's right, whatever. <laughs> um, so the plex is another xenochronic region along with the warp. And the plex is considered no time almost where it's such high intensity and also zero intensity because zero uh the plex is nine zero um and so nine minus zero is nine so the current doesn't move from nine but it also encapsulates zero so it's this very strange motion where it doesn't exactly move but it's kind of like still submerging both zones and the plex is uh Many things, the phenomenon, the plane of consistency, the you know, the high-intensity body without organs, uh, some say, and it's kind of like from whence everything comes. Uh, and this kind of makes sense because properties of a numogram are based on which base it's in. So the numogram that I work with is the decimal pneumogram, which is base 10. But any base can be, uh, can construct a numogram or a number gram. Uh, I think in my book, I use the pound sign, pound slash gram um, to describe those. And each base numogram, base in numogram, has specific properties that are different. So, like a base one uh one gram I guess only has one zone which is zero and only has one gate which is also zero gate zero and, and that's it and formally speaking it would also have no imps but that's a little more advanced um so that's the basic construction of the pneumogram and then all of the like hyperstitional vectors of it are attached to the pneumogram through carriers and unbelief and hype. And there isn't really a unified meaning of what the pneumogram is, but only that it creates things like it literally produces them, I should say. And it produces interesting vectors of contagion. And that's pretty much the point of the pneumogram is something that we can all agree on because like whether or not you really... It's, it's not a question of whether you believe in numbers. It's a question of like how much numbers affect your life. And the reality is that decimal numeracy is endemic to most cultures on earth right now. So we can't really talk about not believing in the pneumogram. It's a simple mathematical construction. You would have to argue against mathematics, which people are happily willing to try to do. But that doesn't change the fact that when they go to the store, they pay three ninety nine dollars for something, which is rooted in decimal uh, numeracy. But yeah, so like when you, when you think of it that way, you can't really argue against the existence of the pneumogram because, and that's why the CCRU says that they discovered the pneumogram, they didn't invent it. Uh, however, I would argue that the, the construction of the image that we see is definitely invented. Um, there is no reason that the warp should be on top and the plex should be on bottom and the time circuit should be in the middle. Uh, we could freely change that design and then see what happens. Uh, and that's something that I definitely think could be pushed more. And that's something that I want to do with my future work is pushing different constructions of pneumograms and different base pneumograms and seeing what happens. Um But we use base 10, and I talk about base 10 in Time Sorcery because that is our common thread throughout all of our, at least English speaking culture. Obviously, it depends, but also the CCRU's argument is that base 10 numeracy is everywhere. And so, because it's everywhere, even if we don't like, even if one person is like, oh, I prefer base six, I'm going to use that. It doesn't change the fact that most things in popular culture are built around base 10.
0: All right. Uh, I think one of the, uh, the most important points you raise raised in times sourcing are the parallels between the CCRU's approach. <clears throat> and what is often referred to around here is astral magic or astrotheology. You go with celestial magic, but we're talking about the same thing, I think. I've delved into this subject a bit of late on the farm. There's a fabulous subscribers episode with the great Peter Mark Adams exploring his uh, gates of Saturn that goes deeply into the subject. And I urge everybody to uh, check out if you haven't done so already. Uh, I also did a solo show by myself, roughly based around Cupid's 2001, that also explores this subject. Astral magic is the foundation stone for a lot of Western magical traditions. It involves ascending through the celestial spheres to the planetary or stellar powers or the reverse drawing these forces down into yourself. So Vex, can you please elaborate on this and how it applies to the CCR used system?
1: One of the reasons that I attach uh, a lot of my work to astral or celestial magic is because it's incredibly popular nowadays. Everyone I know is at least a little into astrology and that means that it's very viral um and as such i found that it was a very easy way to convince people who are already practicing magicians to be interested in pneumogrammatics. um so obviously it depends on your uh celestial magic tradition but Uh, In Lemurian planet works, there are 10 planets, uh, including the sun. So the sun is zone zero, and then you just go from Mercury to Pluto and you get one through nine. Um, Obviously, Pluto is technically not a planet anymore or whatever, but they're also arguing that it should be a planet again. Um, So the existence of Pluto as a planet is still up for debate or whatever. Uh, However, I think Crowley says that Uh, I want to say it might be in Book of Thoth, but nevertheless, um, Crowley says that the new planets new to him that were discovered in the last 200 years are probably important to astrology and we should include them in our systems. And I certainly agree, partly because of the way that popular culture works. um, And they add some really interesting uh, meat to the practice of celestial magic. So um, tacking. The interesting thing also about my trajectory is that I actually only got interested in celestial magic because of the new gram. Before that, I wasn't really uh, into astrology, but then as I started, because I found it so easy to link up the zones to the planets, um, I, I really started to uh, focus my work on that kind of thing. So I would like figure out a way to lemurify uh classic solomonic pentacle like the greater pentacles of solomon that are all rooted in uh planetary uh spellcraft essentially and then like doing things in the prop like doing lemurian evocations in the proper planetary hours um and this also creates interesting dynamics between the sysegetic planets like for example my- well my favorite is Mars and Jupiter and Mars is zone four and Jupiter is zone five. And these are common, uh, this Syzygy is named Caddick and Caddick is the destroyer. Uh, She is a rabid dog endlessly chasing her tail to destroy all of everything. Um, And the CCRU says that we're in the age of Caddick now, which there's certainly quite a lot of evidence in favor of that. Um, but so Kaddick through astral magic is the conjunction of Jupiter and Mars. And when we look at like those two energies, at least from my perspective, obviously I'm sure that, um, other people might feel differently. And that's part of the exciting thing about grammatics is that we can disagree and still have productive conversations because we can return to, the reality of the con- like the conjunction of four and five so like even if i disagree about uh, the particular color of mars for example um like what color should be used in martial spells we can determine it productively uh, through hyperstition instead of saying well oh well my tradition goes back to the the ye olden days where everything was this color or whatever. You, you know what I mean? Um, so anyway, all of that's to say the the inclusion of astral magic in my work is entirely to build hyperstition around the pneumogram so that it can spread. Uh, and it's because it's so easy to translate astral magic to the pneumogram, um it's really, really fast to spread, you know, oh, five, four conjunction, like everything's going to like something bad is going to happen or like there will be chaos, et cetera. Or alternatively, like the, well, another interesting combination for me is the combination of earth with Saturn. So, uh, in Lemurian planet works, earth is associated earth zone three, um, is associated with, you know, runaway creation. It's associated with, you know, life multiplying and multiplying endlessly. Whereas Saturn, obviously zone six is associated with, you know, both death as well as life. Right. Um, it depends on who you ask. A lot of contemporary astrologers are a bit afraid of Saturn because Saturn forces you to really pay for things and forces you to be constantly, you know, memento mori, your time is going to run out on this earth. Um, and so it becomes like this necessary limiting or balancing factor to earth's, you know, runaway creation where Saturn forces things to die. And I think that that's quite a, a productive relationship and conjunction between those two ideas um obviously traditional astrology is geocentric so it's based off of like what we see when we look up um i'm currently exploring though i haven't finalized anything um we have my spouse and i have some ideas Uh, for this, but we're currently trying to tease out a system of heliocentric astrology, which is still rooted in time. So um, this is something else that's important about astral magic is that it's rooted in time, like timekeeping originates with watching the stars move and watching the planets move. Um, And I think it was Young who has a quote that's like, uh, you know, what is so mysterious about the time and place you're born affecting who you become. Uh, and this is in reference to astrology. Um, and that was quite a long time ago before computers. And now, you know, and e- even in his time though, more charts were being ran in his time than ever before. And now more astrological charts are being run and read now than ever before. So I think that in a lot of ways, there's still a lot to tease out about these systems. Um, And it's not purely like it doesn't have to purely be rooted in in these traditional like, oh, well, this planet means this thing and this planet means that thing, et cetera. Um, Because, like, if we consider astrology from a scientific perspective or a vaguely scientific perspective, where we're trying to understand the signals that we get from the world. Um, then it's not, then like we're just getting way more data now than we've ever gotten before. So I think it's, it's just a really productive vector and it's really exciting to see uh, when things work out and also when things don't work out.
0: Yeah, no, it's definitely a fascinating take on, I mean, this subject, no doubt. Okay, Vex, tell us about Cattell and between the pronunciation about that i apologize and uh the deadlines and uh, i gotta ask too because i'm a huge boc fan was that in reference uh i think the song deadlines that
1: they had as far as the song goes i have no idea um but so cathel is uh, i'm not really sure if there is a standard pronunciation of cathel by the way i don't think it matters that much personally but so Cathel is simultaneously an entity as well as a place. So I think you and Ed Berger talked about Cathel a bit, which is um, framing Cathel as like the electromagnetic uh, intelligence that controls the Earth, as it were. Um, and so you could consider Cathel as like the entity on the other side of the singularity, but you could also consider it as the place, um, which is the center of the earth. And uh, specifically uh, this zone is associated with the plex, which is nine zero and uh, gate 45 specifically, which is nine's gate, uh, zone nine's gate is called the utter minus of Cathel, And this is the home of the lemurs. The lemurs are, of course, also known as demons. And my work is well, my work really began with calling the lemurs out of Cathel to try and make contact with them. Uh, so Deadlines is also kind of like this. Well, Deadlines is a deeply hyperstitional creation that has literally from like created itself from fiction. So it started as a bar that existed only in uh, Nick Land's fiction as well as, well, actually it existed in Nick Land's fiction first. Um, He has a few short stories that take place in Cthell, or not in Cathel, in Deadlines. Um, And then Amy Ireland wrote a piece called Ascription. And in Ascription, uh, it takes place in Deadlines. And so my spouse and I, uh, as we were continuing our research into the pneumogram, we're like, we need a place where people can, you know, hang out and talk about the pneumogram, because one didn't really exist. So we said, Oh, well, let's start a deadlines discord server. And now there's a deadlines discord server, which is more or less the same as you know, the deadlines in fiction, where you know, weird people come and talk about the pneumogram or talk about mysterious experiences that they've had more generally and even more still people are talking about creating a real deadlines bar, uh, sometime in the, you know, the next 10 years. So we might literally see deadlines create itself more than it already has, which is really exciting. Um, so, uh astrally speaking i'm not sure uh how familiar you or your audience is with uh uh spirit magic and that kind of stuff so i'll go over a brief overview um the way that i think of the lemurs which we'll get into more later but basically they are also entities which exist like in another plane that we can go to and astrally travel to and access um so, the place that we go to meet them is Cathel and also uh, Deadlines. And Deadlines actually acts as this astral anchor between our world and theirs. Um, so, for my work specifically, I travel to Deadlines and then travel to Cathel beyond Deadlines. Um, and, and so, like, there are a lot of, uh, simultaneous meanings happening in these words for me. And I think a lot of hyperstitional, uh, creatures as it were, uh, where there are a lot of layers that we can take them. Uh, and it really depends on where we are most excited about them that we should move in the direction of. So like, you know, my friends that really want a real life deadlines are interested in a place where they can hang out with their friends, but then there's like the Deadlines Discord server, which allows, you know, people in seven different time zones to talk at the same time, uh, which in itself is an incredibly, like, interesting hyperstitional time problem, wherein which, like, the internet contracts time into, like, a singularity of the only time is the present. Uh, like, you and I right now are talking across time zones and then the people who will listen to this conversation later are also talking like communicating with us through time um and and deadlines really exists as like the center of of all of these weird templexities which is just a fancy word for time anomalies um which is to say like it exists truly outside of time where anyone could ever go like anyone could go there either in fiction or in real life and be in multiple places in the time stream at once. Oh, and Cathel is like the further, deeper manifestation of that, where like the like Cathel is the sum of everything that has ever happened or will happen. Um, and the, and this is related to nine zero and ideas about like the phenomenon and and stuff like that. There's a lot of verbiage there, but.
0: No, it's, uh, it's very interesting, man, and uh, you, know, you kind of need all the hoity-toity language for this stuff to really kind of hold some sway. Uh, all right, so let's get into the main event, Hyperstition proper, for a moment. Well, not to say the main main event, but a big part of all this. So we've mentioned it throughout the show, but let's really delve into it now and how it's used here. So take us through it.
1: Okay. Hyperstition has several definitions. Uh, I'm not going to just read them off because I could, but I won't. Um, I'll take it uh, to a different level, which is uh, in the most simplistic framing, hyperstition is simply a fiction that makes itself real. And the CCRU described a tool set that can be used to create hyperstition. And their framing is... Relatively straightforward. There are three parts to hyperstition. The first is the pneumogram, the second is mythos, and the third is positive unbelief. So the pneumogram acts as the basis of all hyperstition. Um, I can't really, I have yet to determine whether or not that's true in the sense of like, If it's not using the pneumogram, it's not hyperstitional, or if there are other kinds of things that could uh, take the place of the pneumogram in this construction. uh, I tend towards the more conservative definition just for ease of understanding because it's kind of hard enough to grok. Um, So at the basic level, we have the pneumogram, which is just a mathematical construction. It's a diagram of numbers. And it doesn't mean anything. So, what we do, because for whatever reason we do this, is we make connections between these things and then we ascribe them meaning. So, this, like, there's no real meaning to the fact that five and four add up to nine, but the five, four syzygy is hyperstitionally imbued with mythos. And the mythos is the hyperstitional carriers. It's, you know, the stories of the lemurs and the stories of people interacting with the lemurs, whether or not, you know, they really interacted with them is kind of besides the point. If you can be made to believe that there is a conversation happening between you and a lemur, that's no, not really different at all than actually having a conversation with a lemur. Um, So, The mythos then is determined to be true or false based on whether or not people unbelieve it. Um, And positive unbelief is kind of a weird term that's hard to grok. Um, So that's why in most of my writing, I try to use the word hype instead of positive unbelief because I think hype is much more accurate. And, And it's also kind of like they define positive unbelief as hype uh, and hype is an interesting word because it really points to the excitement, the bodily experience of like when you hear an idea that's really cool and you're like, damn, it would be so freaking awesome if that happened. That hype, that excitement is what feeds hyperstition because it's not a question of like, what is true and false now, but what can become true later um so like even if today like if i were to write a story today about i don't know whatever but if i were to write a story and it it's taken as fictional today and then and i even claim this is not real like don't worry about it and then like 10 years down the line people don't see my commentary and say like oh this is definitely real like this definitely happened um and then they run with it that's hyperstition uh and obviously the big example that the ccru uses as well as many uh, other people are lovecraft or is lovecraft um hp lovecraft's work he hated um well hate is really completely the wrong word he did not believe that he was writing reality at all um but then over time, magicians took up his work and said, like, this stuff is real. Like, I've seen the Shagaths, I've seen Cthulhu, you know, I hear Cthulhu whispering in the walls, as it were, or whatever they say. Um, and it becomes something really real, I guess. Uh, whether or not you actually ever find the the altars to the the old ones doesn't really matter because... Like, you can believe that they're there. Like, you, like, it would be so cool to see them that they become true in a sense. Because then beyond that point, you can even say, like, oh, well, like, maybe, you know, the Atlanteans destroyed all the altars or something like that, where it's like, you know, if, and, and this is where time sorcery really gets its roots, which are like the only moment that is certain is your current experience. So if you weren't, and and like even if you were directly involved in a conversation in the past, that doesn't mean that your memory is necessarily accurate, right? So what we have is the possibility of the past being changed because people are excited about the new idea. So for example, like earlier on, I pointed out the, uh, the fact that the CCRU didn't directly reference chaos magic, but I could have created a story where like the CCRU comes into contact with a chaos magic cell and are like, you know, secretly at magical war with, you know, some big name chaos magic person. Um, and it could be believable enough, or at least exciting enough that people start to accept it as true. Um, however, my general uh stance on stuff like that is that i'm interested in cutting through hyperstitions so that we can get at the nothing underneath it all which is to say like there's not really any truth in these concepts and ideas um so i'm not as interested in manipulating you know public opinion for example um, though it, it's definitely a tool that hyperstition uh, is definitely a tool that can be used for those ends.
0: All right. So, uh, let's see here. Okay. So I've got to ask let's get into Lovecraft here a little bit more. Why is he the go to when you're looking to uh, you know, manifest fiction into reality? So,
1: for the CCRU, Lovecraft is the go-to because everyone after him takes him seriously. His stories. So uh, another aspect of hyperstition, which I didn't touch on, is that it, it has to be made like collectively. It has to be explored from like multiple different people pushing a particular narrative. Um, so uh, Mark Fisher, I believe, writes... A blog post on the Hyperstition blog, which is why isn't Sherlock Holmes hyperstitional? And it's because, like, despite the fact that everyone kind of knows who Sherlock Holmes is and he's very successful as like an archetype, nobody really thinks that Sherlock Holmes is like a real dude that goes around solving mysteries. He's just a character in a story. But with Lovecraft, people like Kenneth Grant looked at Lovecraft's work and said, this guy is getting, you know, messages from celestial intelligences. This is really scary stuff that we need to look into and, and like actually take seriously and study it. Um, and so Lovecraft is used as the common example because he was the, the most accessible uh, cultural icon, at least for the CCRU that, uh, ex- uh, what's the word, was well, an example of this manifestation, I guess. Um, because now, like, you know, the Necronomicon didn't exist a hundred years ago. I'm pr- pretty sure. But now it does. Like someone, like not just one Necronomicon, though, multiple Necronomicon's exist. Like if you look up Necronomicon PDF, there are at least five. And one of them is, you know, a collection of Lovecraft's writings, which I actually had in high school, hilariously. But, uh, and then there's, you know, multiple different copies of it and multiple different translations. And then there's the, the, uh, or history of the Necronomicon, which is this, you know, lost text that drives the people who read it mad. And, you know, it's for summoning the great old ones and, It creates horrors beyond your imagination and all of this stuff. And that is, I think, one of the reasons why um, the CCRU latches onto it is because it's already virally spreading. And so it's very easy to say, well, oh, I found another translation of the Necronomicon, which is just the Pandemonium Matrix. Um, Because the, the Pandemonium Matrix in the CCRU system is also known as the Lemurian Necronomicon, uh, the Book of Dead Names. And so like, oh, uh, something else about Lovecraft is that horror and body genre more generally causes physiological effects purely by reading them. So when you read them, the words that you read are embodied. Um, And I think that this specifically creates a very interesting vector of contagion um and it reminds me a lot of uh a Mark Fisher piece called White Magic. And it's about how uh there's a specific quote which is words or spells, but he's not talking like uh you know magic words or anything like that. He's saying that every word is a spell because it's like a manipulation of palette tectonics, which is you know, your literal mouth moving. Uh, which is a materialist effect in the world right um and i think that creating those kinds of effects in like the reader makes it very easy for it to literally become real because and and this also goes into uh hype which is so positive unbelief or hype um i look at as both as excitement which is also anxiety. So if something can create anxiety in you, it's also creating excitement in you. So like if you read about a horrible monster that lives, you know, beyond a threshold or behind a wall, you might start to get scared that it's actually behind your wall. And if you were to like knock the wall down to try and discover this monster, you're more or less making it real, even if there isn't a monster on the other side. Because the potential for the monster to be there has become accepted as possible as, as true essentially. So the effects of the monster being in the wall, well, if you knock the wall down and then there's no monster there, the monster still had an effect on you. And I think that Lovecraft uh, and existential horror, things like that, that are very, you know, dark and cosmic and really well really the word is scary like things that are scary get people excited or anxious uh, which generates hype
0: it's kind of an interesting side note uh, through unforeseen circumstances uh um, that occurred after i had scheduled my interview with you i ended up here in uh, milwaukee wisconsin uh doing this particular interview and uh Ball goes according to plan, I'm going to be heading out to Sauk City and uh, Devil's Lake uh, tomorrow. Sauk City, of course, was uh, the home of Arkham Publishing, um, which is a big publishing council for Lovecraft stuff later on, and uh, Devil's Lake had some uh, interesting Lovecraftian rituals performed there in the 1970s. Uh, so, yeah, kind of a Odd uh, little circumstance to this particular interview, uh, but you know, quite fitting. but that would throw that one in. All
1: right. Amazing synchronicity.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how much this kind of stuff actually happens to me too when I do these kinds of interviews.
1: Really had a fascinating
0: time since I interviewed David Beth on the Saturday Night Current and uh, the Cosmic Gnosis. Um, it's a great one too. Uh, but Mister Beth it's is coming possible. for you. <laughs> yes 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 indeed Uh, on the topic of things coming for me uh so take us through how we build our own reality tunnels and how this applies to colonel michael aquino's concept of
1: mind war okay so i think that the fundamental takeaway from the CRU's philosophy is that you can never actually escape into obje- objective reality. There are only various levels of subjectivities. So literally speaking, then the world is what you make of it because signs have no inherent meaning and they can be overcoated with whatever you need. Um, the goal of the time sorcerer then, in my opinion, is to develop the system that works best for them which means developing the hyperstitions that work best for them, which is, you know, includes rituals and connections and symbolisms and all of that sort of thing. And that's where we get into like the, the Kabbalistic aspects of time sorcery, uh, which is what the CCRU were really interested in. Uh, They were interested and specifically Nick land was really interested in, you know, how the singularity and technoculture manifests uh, itself Kabbalistically. Um, So for us to build one, to build a reality tunnel is to ask oneself, what shall I believe? And this is the ordering out of chaos. It's the creation of the pneumogram out of, you know, the series zero to nine. It's, you know, the ordering of things, it's all of that sort of stuff. And, uh, because people have a tendency to want to create order out of chaos. This is like a natural inclination. Um, but the important thing, and this is where like creating chaos is productive is because it reminds you that the order that exists is not the only order that could ever exist. And this is something where like uh, Mark Fisher talks about it with capitalist realism and his, project on acid communism would probably get into this more, uh, at least based on my understanding of it, uh, which is how do we, uh, remind ourselves that what we think is true doesn't have to be true. Uh, and so this relates to mind war as like mind war is a manifestation of hyperstition. The, there is no reason to assume that a given conflict between two groups is predetermined. However, when you're fighting the mind war, you're convincing the other side that like, not only is their victory impossible, but you've already won. Um, so what you have to do then is invent uh, a narrative that makes that a reality. Whether it's, you know, we have all the ships or we have, you know, all the people, we have the resources, you know, alter- but actually, you know, Michael Aquino frames it slightly differently where it's not even about could we win in a conflict, but like our goals align. Um, I'm having trouble thinking of an example of this, but essentially, like, if you want to convince someone that you're right the easiest way to do it is to, to like explain things to them in such a way where it sounds like something that they've already said, or, you know, alternatively to like, could get them to say what you're thinking by like giving them a hook and then they take the bait. Um, and that kind of like tack, that kind of argumentative tactic easily wins people over because partly it generates hype, right? People want to be right and feel good. And, feel powerful and enjoy themselves and that's why like for me it's not about oh we should destroy all reality tunnels and get back to objective reality itself because that's impossible instead we should accept that well i mean some people will argue that it's not impossible but my framing is that there because there's no real difference between you know one subjectivity and another uh everyone should be allowed to develop their subjectivity according to their own desires and you know in a many ways the project of the aoe is the mind war of our goals are your goals please do not like don't go off the beaten path you know don't don't become a shoggoth don't don't commune with the old ones please just you know, be normal and go to the store and buy our little products and enjoy yourself. Don't worry, you know. Um, And obviously the Neo Lemurian tendency, the Neo Lemurian tendency, which is, you know, vaguely the side of the CCRU is actually people should be able to choose what they believe. Like people should be able to follow their desires, even if they seem counterintuitive or even counter, you know, the world that we think we live in.
0: All right. So, uh, do you have anything else you want to add about hype? It's importance to these workings and so forth in the modern world that you haven't already said.
1: Um, I think something to highlight is really the fact that like hype for whatever reason, whatever it is. And one of the problems is that hype is an incredibly sticky question. Um, like the CCR, you tried to define it succinctly and didn't really succeed. And I've been trying to define it very succinctly and I've gotten close, but it's still a little nebulous at times, but we can find traces of it in the market effects of specific stock market actions, like short squeezes, for example. And like, so GameStop was this wonderful, beautiful hype example. Um, uh, So for those that don't know, the GameStop stock underwent a short squeeze of sorts, wherein which a lot of people bought into it, but there wasn't enough supply of GameStop stock. And so the price started to rise. Because everyone who bought it kept holding on to it. Um, And this is like a natural market effect. This is just what happens when supply and demand work out the way that they uh, naturally do if left unchecked. And like whether or not those people believed in GameStop was totally irrelevant. Because holding the stock made them more money, at least on paper. Um, and, and that made other people want to buy into the stock because they saw that they could continue to make money as well. And there are still, it's also important to note that there are still some questions regarding this system. Like, does it actually require someone to buy into the hype? Like, does someone have to essentially say like, oh, I'm going to put, put up real resources to make this a reality? Um, and I suspect that the answer might be yes, but there's still a lot of room for conversation around, you know, this and other parts of the CCRU system. We're really barely, well, I wouldn't say barely at this point, I guess, but we are scratching the surface and just revealing, you know, the top handful of layers
0: Yeah, no, it certainly seems like it, and uh, I mean, it's obviously highly versatile, um, but yeah, it's, uh, I've seen a lot of it really starting to spread increasingly in the last five years, and some of these underground uh, currents, you know, not at all really related to any of the Nick Land stuff, or the, you know, the so-called dark enlightenment, it has been uh, quite fascinating. All right. So can you talk a bit about the Lemours and your experiences with them?
1: Yeah. Um, so my history as a magician is mainly through spirit work and necromancy. Um, goetic demon summonings, uh, you know, talking to spirits of the dead. Uh, my very first experience with magic was summoning my friend's dead boyfriend uh, who had just like recently passed um and it was i mean i performed that as like kind of a joke and i convinced and and then i had a classic spiritual uh, like ghost experience of the cold spot uh where i was touched on my arm and i got like confirmation from someone in my family at the time this is like you know 10 years ago but I got confirmation from someone in my family that there was a cold spot on my arm. And I was like, oh, a ghost touched me. I guess this stuff's real. Um, So I've always been fascinated by spirit systems and uh, chaos magic was always really interesting to me because you you could create a spirit out of just like your sheer will. Um, The lemurs are not quite uh, spirits though, in a traditional sense. they're best understood as swarm intelligences. Uh, They do not really differentiate themselves very easily. And part of the problem here is that they're defined, so lemurs are defined mathematically um, by, they are uh, traditionally defined as the irreducible hyperdistance between two zones. and as uh, more advanced pneumogrammaticists would know, they're just higher order imps. So imps are impulse entities, which are just connections made in the pneumogram, including zones themselves. Uh, there are 1,023 imps, but we only deal for the most part with the 10 zones and the 45 lemurs. Um, I'm also working my current work is rooted heavily in impology. Um, and I'm currently on Twitter. I'm currently exploring imps uh, a bit. But anyway, so my first experience with the lemurs was my first real act of pneumogrammatic magic, which is I summoned the five syzygies. And originally I was going to do, I was going to do a week-long project where I was going to summon one a day and I had like this series of questions to ask them to try and get a better handle on the system because I understood it enough to kind of dip my toe into it, but I didn't really understand what to use it for yet. So I figured that, you know, contacting the lemurs would allow me to understand what they're like, what they were doing and where they were coming from. And so the first lemur that I summoned was Caddick four and it was uh i used a television as a black mirror and i drew a uh bl- a white triangle as like the center of summoning right um where you summon the demon into the triangle and and then evoke it to appearance um so i kind of played off of those themes and surprisingly slash unsurprisingly you know something came through and i was so like excited and energized from that that i decided to summon all of them in one night which looking back is just utterly ridiculous because summoning even summoning like a couple spirits at once is very difficult um so summoning like all five lemurs or all five syzygy uh syzygetic lemurs you know in a moment where like i didn't really understand them was quite, you know, the entity was contacting me. It was reaching its tendrils out. And then I was infected and that was it. The rest is history. But, um, so that was my first real experience. And then throughout time, I've come to understand them less as spirits and more as like masks or resonances of energies. Um, <clears throat> So a great example of this would be like summoning Caddick as uh, a manifestation of the conjunction between Jupiter and Mars or like using uh, Katakian uh, symbolism like a rabid dog or the color red or blood or, you know, anything like that. Uh, And on this point as well, um, the lemurs that have net spans from, uh, any given zone to zero. So, like uh, five zero, for example, are considered the greater planetary lemurs. Um, and the reason for this is that those lemurs are called the doors of a given phase. And these doors like open up the potential of the complete set of lemurs from uh, five zero or X zero to, you know, X to X minus one also makes more sense in text. But anyway, Um, and those lemurs, so I've determined that those lemurs kind of, you know, find their own traces in the other lemurs of a given phase. Uh, And this is a very important part of pneumogrammatics, which is that the lemurs are not monogamous. they are not discrete entities. You cannot just treat them as, Oh, well, I banished, you know, five, four. So I never have to worry. Like th- those energies are gone now. That is not true. Um, which creates a bit of chaos because you might call a particular lemur and end up in a situation where you we're actually working with five or you're actually working with, you know, uh, if you call a specific right, which is a path, uh, or route through the pneumogram, uh, for example, caddocks write four one eight seven two five also includes eight one and seven two. So, like, can it be said that caddock is different from eight one and seven two? Is it the summation of these things? It's hard to say, and it has to be determined hyperstitionally, of course. Um, and all of that hyperstition is built around the effects that the lemurs have when you call on them, uh, which can also be produced purely through mythos. So, like, if uh, Nick Land, his fiction is rooted in Kabbalism to a, a high extent, if you've never well, if you uh, have ever read his fiction, he uses a lot of hidden AQ, uh, which is in Glossic Kabbalah, uh, which is the system of gematria that The CCRU developed, which uh, goes from zero to Z in a series. But his work is heavily rooted in like Lemurian hyperstition and like trying to explicate what the lemurs are doing and what kind of people they are. Well, people is the wrong word. What kind of entity they are? Because they are definitely not human. Um, And hyperstitionally. Lemurs are considered like simultaneously ancestors and future spirits because they're, it's a list of dead names from like the Necronomicon is retro deposited from the future. So it's a list of entities that may or may not have yet to come into existence, but they already exist now, uh, which I think is a really interesting tension that like completely uh sp- well, it, it really highlights the spirodynamism of the system, uh, which is a fancy word that the CCRU uses to describe their uh their system of sorcery, which is spirodynamic cosmic production. But yeah, the lemurs are quite a trip. And nowadays, like a lot of people meme them and you know, post pictures of real lemurs, like the the animal and that's not without reason, because the name lemur also simultaneously refers to like Burroughs' obsession with lemurs. I'm not actually sure if that's true, but whatever. Like, I don't know if Burroughs actually wrote about lemurs. I just assume that it's true. I've never read that deeply into Burroughs.
0: Yeah, I'm not too familiar with Burroughs either outside of Naked Lunch. Uh, so I couldn't really say one way or the other, but uh, fascinating nonetheless. All right, so to wrap up, I wanted to tackle Kenneth Grant for a moment. Time travel also plays a role in his system, and I believe practitioners of that uh, both also uh, use what you dubbed the Shimmer to assess different timelines. Of course, Grant was also known for his novel approach to the Kabbalah. Uh, how much of an influence Grant on the CCRU and time magic in general?
1: So, so cool. I hadn't read grant until you reached out to me for this interview. Um, because it, uh, it never really came up in my work, um, before this. Uh, and he is only mentioned in the CCRU, um, like kind of implicitly or like, uh, he's mentioned, I think twice and it's both on the hyperstition blogs. Um, And as far as I can tell, they only casually read him. However, uh, so Grant is really important for two main aspects, I think. The first is that he took Lovecraft seriously and he is like the prime example of creating hyperstition because he looked at, you know, H.P. Lovecraft's work and he said like, holy shit, there's something here. (laughs) And that really grew grabbed a lot of people's attention and it it also obviously grabbed the CCRU's attention. Uh, in my opinion, I think that, uh, the CCRU's work is in many ways, a direct critique of Kenneth Grant's project. Um, where instead of like, based on what I read of Kenneth Grant's work and like also the project of Thelema in general, um, I think that the CCRU looks at the project of unification and the project of like, oh, we can go back to like the traditional dynamism of the old ways, where if we just like, if we reread the Babylonian scripts, if we could ever find them, we would have all of the answers we could ever need and everything would be fine. Um, Specifically, Kenneth Grant, I think it's in Outer Gateways, but I'm not entirely sure, has a quote about the English Kabbalah. And he says that any... Design like any English Kabbalah that ever gets discovered would be necessarily secondary to the classic Kabbalahs, uh, sorry, the classic gematrias of the past. Um, and specifically, he's talking about Hebrew gematria and Greek gematria. And Nick Land definitely disagrees with this and is like, no, like the reason the English Kabbalah is cool is because it represents and like decodes popular culture as it's used now, like English is, you know, the language that, well, you and I are speaking in right now, but also like, it's very common on the internet um, as like the singularity spreads, as cyber culture spreads, English, you know, continues to reemerge as this incredibly popular language. And so to to write it off as like, Oh, there's no esoteric content here, or all of the esoteric content that could ever be found is necessarily secondary to, you know, other older languages. Um, it is definitely ridiculous in the eyes of the CCRU um, because like the CCRU again is all rooted in, you know, the effects of things that are happening now. So like, when we use English words, we're, we're doing something and we can't say purely like, oh, well, it's really rooted in the etymology of the English words and that's where they get their power from because language doesn't necessarily work that way. It's not like a top-down meaning projected from the past into the present, into the future. It's a lot more chaotic than that. Uh, and the CCRU really wants to highlight the chaos and the multiplicity of possibilities in their work. Um, so I think, in the, but you know, at the same time, they obviously don't ever write anything about how like Kenneth Grant sucks or anything like that. So I'm sure that they respect him uh, and respect his work. And I mean, I, I reading his book uh, and reading, I think I started Ninth Arch also but it's quite interesting stuff and like he clearly did incredible magic um and so i think that like looking at the way that he wrote and the way that he like his commentaries on uh his received works that he did with his temple are very good like very interesting to read. And I think that everyone should at least look at them uh, if only to discover how to actually use Kabbalah and apply it. Uh, Because that's something that I think new people to the CCRU system have trouble doing is like, well, what do you actually use AQ for? And I think Kenneth Grant really reveals what you should use it for. You know, Crowley says, uh, I think it's in Magic Without Tears, uh, you should construct your own Kabbalah. And I definitely think that that's true. And the CCRU drives that home even further by making it about, you know, popular culture as in what we're speaking now instead of uh, returning to tradition as it were.
0: Well, it's well put. And I mean, I, I think that's really the, uh, for me, at least the most fascinating aspect of a lot of their system is the importance that they applied to popular culture. And it is uh, fascinating um, just, you know, how popular it's become uh, in the 21st century. As you said it was really a very marginal and unexplored current uh, when it was unfolding during the 90s and the early noughts. Whereas now, you know, you can kind of see the influence everywhere. And, um, you know, again, obviously, Nick Land tends to get the lion's share of credit, but uh, Mark Fisher really did a lot of fascinating work on this as well. Uh, actually, I just uh, finished reading The Weird and Eerie not too long ago. It's an excellent work. Yeah. Yeah, I often find it interesting that they tended to fixate on a lot of my favorite films growing up as well. I mean, I think I've spoken about my obsession quite a bit over the years, but in, within the Mouth of Madness. So uh, I was delighted to see that that was kind of a mechanical uh, film within the lexicon of the CCRU, if you will. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, good stuff in, there in that regard, and it is endlessly fascinating I mean how they kind of crafted a magical system around that
1: yeah I think it's really uh, exciting and also uh, in addition to the influences that you mentioned orphan drift uh, is really a secret influence in the aesthetics of cyberspace Um, it doesn't come up that much and people don't really talk about orphan drift um, but I think that they're like secretly, you know, behind a lot of the weird collage work and stuff that we see on the internet. Um, and they are, were definitely very influential in the early aughts. Um, they definitely like, they worked with uh, nine inch nails, for example, on one of uh, nine inch nails tours in 2002, I believe. So I think that those kinds of aesthetics really started to proliferate really. And, and, uh though to say that it's from them specifically is obviously hyperstitional because you know who can really say for sure uh and i'm sure that there are many other influences uh that we could look to which suggests that there is some like deeper level of resonance that cyber culture created like the age of the internet has is now upon us and we all really discovered these things at the same time and now like you know, in the last five years, we're rediscovering them as like, oh, like the internet doesn't have to just be Facebook and MySpace. It can be this other weird crap, you know? You
0: yeah, know, that is an interesting point. I mean, it has, you know, definitely the last five or so years, maybe even a little further back, we have seen a massive resurgence of OG cyber culture. That is for sure. And it has been interesting to witness it. Um, but I mean, you know, I think maybe in some senses it was a little ahead of its time in the 90s, early knots during the heyday. But I mean, yeah, I know what you're saying that kind of, uh, I think especially that whole milieu around like disinformation.com and what have you is really started to come back into vogue now. But I mean, uh, it is very uh, consistent with the times that we're living in. Uh, it is chaotic, if nothing else.
1: <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And I think that that's also interesting when we think about things like hype cycles and like, because, you know, everyone, well, maybe not everyone, but the people I know who are interested in economics say that economies work in cycles. So if culture also works in in a cyclical manner, then we could say that like, well, the resurgence of cyberculture and cyberpunk as we know it, or as we knew it in the 90s and now it's returning to us, was more or less predetermined. Um, whether or not that's true, I don't know. And I would say that time is a spiral. So it's it like we may be returning to the past, but we're also cutting it up. Uh, we're doing something new with it. Whether or not anyone wants to believe that is up to them.
0: Well, uh, well put, Vex, well put. Uh, I suppose on that note, uh, we shall wrap up then. I want to thank you very much for dropping by. This has been a fascinating conversation, and I'm uh, sure a lot of the uh, the listeners will enjoy this one immensely. Uh, everybody loves the good talk about CCRU, time magic, and all that good stuff after all. All right. Well, with that, I will say, as always, good night and good luck to you all.